Hey everyone, Couch Investor back with another Lemonade video for you today. So in today's video, we have the CEO Daniel Schreiber coming on with an interesting conversation. We talk about reinsurance, we talk about Lemonade's plans for the future, how it actually started, and we hypothetically talk about the potential maybe car insurance that might be coming in the future. So if you're interested, stay tuned. If you like these videos, leave it an early thumbs up. And if you haven't subscribed yet, maybe now is the time to hit that subscribe button. Now, without further ado, enjoy the interview. Why, why start a, a company in, in the insurance industry? And uh, how, how did you actually attract VCs such as uh, having SoftBank in your corner? since it's just, let's say, just an insurance company. <laughs> just an insurance company. Um, you know, th there was a time that we thought of tech investments as pure play tech. So Apple made computers, Microsoft made operating systems. Um, but increasingly, I think what we found is that the um, real innovation and real value creation is by bringing all of those capabilities, those disciplines, those technologies, those uh, um, innovations, and the mindset that goes with it into industries that have not yet really experienced the true power of those capabilities. Um, so Amazon, is Amazon just a retailer? I, I don't think we'd call it just a retailer. Um, or is Tesla just a car maker? Uh, clearly, clearly not. So I do think that over the course of um, the years, we've come to understand that a lot of value creation lies not in just a Google that is creating something that is purely technology for, for technology's, not technology's sake, but for the technology that it has and more bringing technology into industries that could be disrupted or um, massively changed and transformed and that you can unlock huge amounts of value. Now, if you accept that as a, as a thesis, then that would explain why SoftBank or other VCs were interested. When it comes to insurance specifically, um, that may be the, I don't want to say the ultimate, but close to it. Um, just in terms of the enormity of the industry, so 100% household penetration in the US, 11% of GDP, trillions of dollars worldwide. Um, and how little transformation it had experienced. Um, there was no startup or tech version of insurance. There was only the same guys that have been around since the era of the horse-drawn carriage. And it was one of those things that nobody, certainly not I, but I don't think SoftBank or Sequoia, who, who invested earlier or others, I don't think they'd really thought about it, but once you see it, you can't unsee it. It's like one of those aha moments, something that was hiding in plain sight. Um, and once we, Shai and myself, saw insurance um, and we realized how huge, how unchanged, how unloved it is, the possibility of unlocking staggering amounts of value um, was too good to pass up on. Okay, now sounds, sounds about right. I think everyone that asks that, that questions when I, when I cover Lemonade, it's like, why what's so special about insurance they're, they're not really nothing special just an insurance company it's always come back with the with the same arguments is tesla just a car maker is apple just making iphones etc i think people soon realize that disrupting an old industry may look a bit simple at first but once the disruption happens then suddenly there everybody's like oh may, maybe they have something something on their hands here absolutely 
So this goes actually into the second question, which is why go public so soon? I know you wrote a, a blog a couple of, I think, years maybe ago about going public so soon, but I just wanted to pick your brain on, on why bring Lemonade after, I think, four years into the, the public market, facing those huge questions, routines and whatnot. Sure. And I'll start off by, by saying I'm very glad that we did. Um, and it was an unconventional thing to do. Uh, it's been interesting to see a lot of other insurance companies go public and short tech companies go public uh, since, but it was certainly an unconventional thing to do. So there's a couple of thoughts that, that guided us in that, in that process. The one thought that didn't guide us in that process is um, access to capital, at least not in the short term. Uh, you mentioned SoftBank. We have a, um, a bunch of incredible VCs around our table before we go public. Google, SoftBank, General Catalyst, Sequoia, deep-pocketed investors who would have financed the business on an ongoing basis as well. And frankly, probably at a higher valuation than what we went public at. We actually went public at $29 a share. That was down from the private round that we did um, shortly before. So I think access to capital, there's abundant capital even in the private markets, sometimes on valuations that are even higher than the public markets. So at least that was true at the time. Um, for us, the guiding thought process was not what is good for today or how do we raise the next round, but what is the platform upon which to build the kind of business that we want to build? And we realized that we would be building for many years, frankly, for decades. The, the stunning thing about insurance is that it is so big and you can double and double and double and double and double and become a $20 billion company and at that point in, in revenue. And at that point, you're a small insurance company and you can double again and that's point you're a medium insurance company and you could double a couple of times. It's kind of crazy. And you ask yourself the question, not what is good, as I say, for right now, but what is the right platform upon which to build an endurable, iconic company for the, for the long term? And I think when you phrase the question that way, the public markets are obviously the right place to go. Um, I'll say one thing more than that. We looked at the class of 2019, the IPOs of 2019. 2019 was expected to be a blockbuster year. And a lot of the IPOs of 2019 today look pretty good, like Peloton. But when Peloton went public, it was a disaster. It fell like a rock. And in general, the high expectations of 2019 led to a lot of disappointments. Uber, other companies, WeWork, that never happened. It looked pretty bleak. And I studied a little bit about what went right and what went wrong. And I'm generalizing, but this was kind of the conclusion that I got to, which is, if you look back to some of the truly iconic companies that have endured and stood the test of time, Microsoft, Apple, um, Amazon, companies that went public by and large in the 90s, um, they went public at about our age and stage, at about four years and at about $100 million of top line. Um, so they were pretty small. They had no choice. There was no soft bank. There was there was not the late stage venture capital that's available today. Um, and they took their knocks in the public market. Amazon had a terrible year in 99, but they endured over the long term. And they did a lot of their growing up in the public markets. They rewarded the public market investors who invested in them through growth. And that gave them access to further capital in the public markets. 
as opposed to some of the companies that went public in 2019 that had really done all of their growing in the private markets. And it felt to me like they were heaving themselves onto the public markets to really get liquidity. And public market investors don't appreciate that. And then they didn't do well. And then they got into this bad spiral. I'll say one more thing in this regard. So, so one is it just isn't a, a reinforcing positive thing for the long term. I actually think that public markets are good because of the scrutiny. People want to avoid them because of the scrutiny. But I think that if you're thinking again for the long term, the scrutiny is good. It, it builds resilience. It makes you build the right way. You don't want to be short term. You don't want to manage for the quarter. But you do want to build something with the right disciplines in place. And I think that companies that stay private for too long risk creating the wrong kind of cultures. Um, cultures that have a single focus on growth to the expense of the more nuanced and, and complex goals that a business ought to have. And too often, I'm generalizing, but too often it also resulted in cultures that were not great. We saw a lot of bro cultures, some me too moments uh, in some of these companies as well, CEOs who had to leave in disgrace and other kind of cultural challenges. So I think of it as a parent, I think of it a little bit like extended adolescence. Sometimes as parents, we coddle our kids for too long rather than letting them go out into the big wide world, get their knocks and grow into the mature adults that we want them to be. Um, coddling them too long at home doesn't build long-term resilience. I think as parents, I think that's true for companies as well. Oh, that's interesting, fair enough. Um, I also think like once, once you're public, you probably will get free marketing, whether it's positive marketing or, or negative marketing, regardless, since you are public, like when you reach 1 million customers, suddenly lots of people talk about it, what's lemonade, and then the, the snowball keeps on rolling and rolling. I think that's a good, good effect, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I agree. People do talk about an IPO as an important brand building um, effect. I don't think that's a reason to go public, frankly. For sure. Um, some B2B businesses need to be public for the credibility because they're dealing with governments or larger institutions that want to see a public company dealing with them. With consumer-facing businesses, that's less of an issue. Um, but there's no question that it can be a branding effect. And if the business does perform, it can be quite a positive branding effect yeah. as well. Yeah. And how, how big of a difference is it being built on technology? Because that's what the main difference between you and the other dinosaur insurance companies. Having that technology layer and on top of that being also the insurance carrier and not just a, a broker does that help obviously with helps with being partnerships um, with Geico or SoFi or probably others as well yeah so in the early days we were strongly advised not to do everything ourselves and um, Shai and I come out of 20 years of entrepreneurship in the tech industry and a lot of well-wishing people said to us, kind of stick to your knitting. You guys know tech, do tech. Let the insurance grown-ups do the insurance piece and become an MGA or partner with, with them. Um, <laughs> and I'm so pleased we didn't heed that particular piece of advice. There's a real glass ceiling, and I think it's a pretty low glass ceiling for how fast you can move and how much you can reinvent if you don't own every piece of the stack. Um, and I think a lot of the long-term value that we're creating at Lemonade is not simply the chatbots and the stuff that consumers see and are delighted by, 
but the system that is built where we handle claims, we go to the regulators, we think about the capital implications, we handle support, and the symbiosis that can be created by having each of those systems feed into each other and be fed by each other is very powerful. I think that, and I've spoken to other CEOs of companies who did start the other route, and I think to a person they regret it, and a lot of them are now trying to reverse into being uh, carriers of some sort, and that's also not simple once you've built one way. Um, so there's no question that the, the you have to do the hard work of establishing an insurance carrier. It's not for the faint of heart. Doing it in the great state of New York is particularly demanding. The, the regulators there are known to be very, very exacting. But paradoxically, I think it is actually the easiest path. Given what our goals were, it's one of those paradoxical things of being the short, long way, if you know what I mean. Because if you take too many shortcuts, you just find that at the end of the day, you haven't really got to your destination and suddenly you've got a huge mountain to climb. It, it, for us, it was absolutely the right thing to do. All right. Now, thanks to that, you're now an insurance carrier and you can actually partner up with other insurance company. I saw Geico on the list, uh, SoFi as well, offering Lemonade renters insurance. How's the relationship with, with those big companies? So SoFi is not an insurance company. SoFi um, is a fintech company yeah. and they use our APIs. And when you go there to get a loan or whatever, if you need to get insurance, you can get it um, algorithmically, machine to machine interfaces using APIs. It's fabulous. We love that kind of mm -hmm. thing. Um, we aren't working with Geico anymore. Oh, okay. We aren't working with Geico anymore. So um, during the course of um, middle of 2019, we did some experiments with mm -hmm. Geico. Um, but ultimately we parted ways with them. All right. And are there other partnerships out there that are going through another big incumbent and using the Lemonade API? We have a lot of companies using the Lemonade API, but it tends not to be incumbents. So it tends to be, for example, and SoFi is a good example of this, but mortgaging banks. Mm -hmm. So a lot of them are trying to move their mortgaging process to be online and then it's a pain in the neck because you go through the whole process online and then they say, now stop, go to the main street, go get yourself some homeowner's insurance and come back to me. Um, and that you can understand why an API interface into Lemonade's home insurance can make a lot of sense. You can imagine a lot of situations where pet insurance makes sense in the same way, renters, you, or just you know, you're going to websites where you're looking for homes and you want to know what the home insurance would cost. So a lot of API um, implementations of that kind, albeit, most of our business doesn't come from that. Most of our business by design is direct to consumer. Um, and I expect it to stay that way. All right. Now talking about the API, I looked a bit on, on the website and saw all the possibilities that, that can happen with, with the help of the, of the API. How far can, can this go? Because I was thinking about maybe integrating with Zillow or Open Doors platform like that, or maybe even like the home security systems like, like Ring. So oh, Absolutely. And we do have some of those. And we do have a lot of um, um, websites where you find properties. You mentioned Zillow, stuff like that. We already do a bunch of implementations of that kind. I think we have some hundreds of um, partnerships with um, management companies. So you live in an apartment in New York. There's a management company that's managing the, the complex and they'll recommend lemonade to you and it will go through there. So we do have a fairly rich set of partnerships. Um, 
in the real estate arena, in the finance arena, and increasingly in other areas as well. Okay, well, that's good. It's good to know. I'm going to pivot a bit, a bit into something a bit more, more serious, which is the, the reinsurance uh, aspect. So I've been asked tons of questions regarding this, but how reliant is Lemonade on reinsurance right now? I know there was a restructuring last summer. Um, and moving forward, is Lemonade thinking of maybe reducing, seeding the 75% to those reinsurance? And when do they see that happening in the future? Yeah, that's a great question. And it does get a little bit technical pretty quickly, but I'll try and keep it um, at a level that makes sense to people. Um, we make extensive use of reinsurance and we have from our first day. But the first point I'll make is we don't actually have to. So Lemonade is, as we discussed earlier, its own insurance carrier. Insurance carriers don't need to use reinsurance. They are risk-bearing entities, they have their own capital, they have their own licenses. And if tomorrow we wanted to, or it was forced upon us by somebody else, we could go to zero reinsurance and would continue to sell policies. Our consumers would get the same experience. Not that much would change from their perspective at all. Um, we don't go there because reinsurance gives us certain benefits that we like. And at the moment, the cost benefit makes a lot of sense for us. A time may come where the mix shift uh, um, will look different. So reinsurance gives us one or two big benefits. Actually, the most important one is capital efficiency. When you have massive tail exposures, when you know, you've got this, yeah, most years it will look like this, but occasionally it's going to look like this, then regulators require you to keep enough capital set aside for those long tail events. Through reinsurance, you can offload those tail events and you can contain, you can create collars around your loss ratio to ensure that they won't go too extreme. Um, and that has, as I say, a number of benefits. One is if you've, if you've structured it right through seeding, you don't need to retain anywhere near as much capital as you otherwise would. Now, when we're a young company, that's particularly compounded because when you grow very fast as we are, just the way those ratios are calculated, there's a timing disconnect between when the money comes in and when the regulators require you to set it aside. Now, if you're a steady state, it doesn't matter. But if you're growing like this, you end up with a ratio of something like one to two, which means if I sell you $100 of insurance, I have to set aside half of that, 50 cents on the dollar in an account. It's still my money, it doesn't go out but it's locked. I can't use it to invest in R&D or other things. It sits on my balance sheet, but it's locked. The way we've structured our reinsurance today allows us to set aside something like one to seven. So radical different levels of capital efficiency. And we get down to levels of, of setting aside capital that looks very much like any tech company would. It's just everybody wants to keep some cash reserves. And you start looking just like a tech company rather than like an insurance company. And the reinsurance gives us those benefits. The other benefits have to do with predictability of results, has to do with the way we structure our give back, although we could work our way around that, has to do with our promise of the 25% flat fee. So a lot of things for us do come together and we find this very powerful, um, but not at any cost. If reinsurance became prohibitively expensive, we might take down or omit reinsurance. 
And as our business grows and becomes more diverse, our, our volatility naturally dies down. So geographic dispersion is one. Wildfires in California are terrible, but they don't affect France. Um, and product mix is another. Wildfires in California are terrible, but they don't affect pet health insurance or life insurance. So I do think that we will episodically continue to monitor and see how much volatility, what makes sense. And it would not be surprising to me and should not be surprising to anybody if upon renewals, we renegotiate and we look at different structures, always stage appropriate to where lemonade is at that time. Yeah, no, it makes sense because I know there, there are two, two deals on the table, right? One for one year and the other is for usually three, three years, that's correct? That's what we've signed at the moment. And most of our reinsurances are on a three-year cycle, but we do have elements that renew on an annual basis, trying to get the balance right between stability and the ability to renegotiate as, as things change. In general, as our loss ratio has now for a while been under 75, um, this structure has been working well for us and for our reinsurance partners. I have little reason to suspect that they wouldn't want to renew. And yet, as I say, you know, reinsurance actually is a bit of a commodity. Mm -hmm. Like pork bellies or gold, supply and demand affect mm -hmm. it. So um, when there are natural catastrophes, reinsurance costs go up because there's more demand and different things. So at any given moment in time, we'll evaluate what is the cost of the reinsurance. Does not make sense? Do we want more? Do we want less? And every year, elements of this will get renewed and, and may look slightly different. All right. Makes sense. Now you talked about about France and the geographical situation. How how is that actually looking? Because we haven't really heard that much about the European part. Um, can we expect maybe news in the upcoming earnings report, or how how is that looking out for now? So the nature of earnings reports of public companies is that you're not allowed to yeah, share so yeah. with a couch investor. Um, with all due respect, <laughs> no, no, no worries. Uh, I'm not going to give away anything um, like that, but let me say this. Um, it's incredible for us that we're able to expand geographically in the way that we have, and it's very unusual. Um, very few or perhaps no companies that are well-known in Europe. In France, you have AXA. In Germany, you've got Allianz, etc. In, in the US, those are unknown brands, and brands that everybody knows in the US, State Farm and Allstate, etc., are unknown in Europe. And the idea that a company at our age and stage is already on two continents and expanding pretty quickly. We launched three major European countries in the space of 18 months. Yeah, pandemic. During a pandemic, during yeah. a pandemic quite right. Um, that suggests that something different is going on. Um, but I, I will tell you, and we mentioned this in our last earnings call or in our, our shareholder letter, we do think globally. So we don't spend time thinking, how do we make Holland a success any more than we think, how do we make Oklahoma a success? We think about our global markets and our global products. And we say, if we invest this dollar, where's it going to get the best return? And on one given month, it might mean homeowners in California and another month might mean property insurance in Germany. And we will move seamlessly between products and between geographies at the moment for various reasons, usually the US wins that battle with Europe. So we are still putting the bulk of our investments in the US. Europe is going, growing slower because of that, just because the unit economics there aren't as good as they are in America. 
I do anticipate that changing over time. As our markets mature and market shares mature, we may find that that same algorithm produces a different result and suddenly you start shifting dollars around over time. All right, now it makes sense. Now, also for in, in Europe, for example, I think homeowners or renters insurance is, is required by, by law. So that's obviously an added value to grow more and more in, into Europe. Now, regarding the growth of 2021, obviously, not going to ask what's going to happen. It's going to be a surprise, but is there a hiring bottleneck? How's the hiring looking? Because you can grow and grow, but you probably need some staff. I think right now there's over a million customers, 500 employees or something like that. Yeah. Um, so how, how's the growing and the hiring going? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And the premise of the question is right. Um, we are constrained by hiring. So we are, and I make no apology for this, we are very pedantic about whom we hire. Um, and we try to have really amazing people and I'm hugely proud of the, the team at Lemonade. They are really an extraordinary bunch of people with a very cohesive and compelling culture. And doing that um, is tough when you're trying to grow at the rates at which we're growing. Um, we started our lockdown on March 12th of uh, 2020. And we have offices in the US and Europe and in Israel and we closed all our locations. And since that time, we have more than doubled. Most of our employees joined us without ever meeting another person in, in person, without ever visiting one of our offices. So that introduces other layers of, layers of complexity. You have to be able to find, interview and onboard team members um, under those circumstances. And it's gone surprisingly well. That hasn't actually slowed us down anywhere near like I would have anticipated. Um, nevertheless, I do think that um, hiring is one of the bottlenecks that we have. We would be doing things faster were not the case. And there's no magical fix to that because it's not just hiring. It's how quickly an organization can maintain its culture while onboarding new people. So even if you could open up the floodgates and just bring on board you know, an unlimited number of people, that wouldn't be the right thing to do. Again, if you're looking about the long-term and building sustained value and cultures that can endure, you have to try Tate. You've got to get it at the right level at which the organization can absorb and the people can feel productive, etc. But that, that is one of the things that gates how fast we can move. All right. Interesting. Now, one of the last couple of questions, but I know maybe you can't say a lot, but so let's stay in the hypothetical uh, state. Um, a lot of people are asking also, you can see on Google Trends, they want car insurance, car insurance, car insurance. Everybody's asking about car insurance. Um, I've seen a couple of tweets and posts by Lemonade that are maybe, I don't know, hinting towards that. But let's say Lemonade is going to go into that uh, insurance industry, car insurance industry. How is it going to do it? Because we know now it's autonomous vehicles. Who's going to get insurance? Is the car, is the owner, the operator? Um, how is Lemonade actually going to do that? Are they going to partner up with auto manufacturers? Just trying to, to speculate and, and figure that one out. Yeah, all hypothetically, right? Hypothetically, of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'll give you a scoop. Um, none of those tweets were meant to be hints at anything. Um, in retrospect, I was like, oh, that's, I should have thought of that, should have seen that. 
um, but they weren't by design, weren't planting clues, actually. Um, I think we've been pretty open about the idea that we want to cater to all of our customers' needs. And even in our S1, we have this image of a young woman starting life and she's got her bike and her dog and then there and goes through life cycles. And car insurance is clearly one of those important pieces along the way. And today we are operating in a sense with one hand tied behind our back because we get hit A, in the field of home insurance because home insurance and car insurance are very often bundled. And what we find is that um, we're doing pretty well. Our home insurance business is, is flourishing, but it's doing that, as I say, with one hand tied behind our back because a lot of customers won't buy those policies separately. And an extension of that, the second point I was going to make is we're sending customers away. So customers want home insurance, uh, car insurance. We can't provide it. Therefore, they have got to go to someone else, which is in itself a disappointment and a, a bug. Um, but it's compounded that because that broker will say to them, hey, if you move your home insurance or whatever it is as well, you'll get a 10%, 20% discount and, and um, that's no good either. So we're certainly motivated to cater to all of our customers' needs. Um, I, I think we're also reasonably um, well read about the kind of autonomous vehicle and the, the data implications of different technologies within the car space. And that's about all I'm going to say on that today. All right, no, good, good enough. Because uh, I've seen a couple of also people on Twitter saying they love Lemonade, they've looked at the homeowner's insurance, but then they wanted to bundle, and that's why. And on one part, that's maybe a positive because when you get more and more policies out there, you know people are waiting for to sign up and, and, and join Lemonade. So that's maybe a, a very positive sign. I know here in Belgium, already told my family, look for uh, for Lemonade whenever they, they, they'll uh, open in Belgium. But uh, now to wrap, to wrap up, I think Lemonade has done a great job as a small company, young company as well. Um, I think people underestimate the, the power of, of an insurance company and the insurance business. Um, I'm very super, well excited to see what go what's going to happen in 2021, um, hopefully with the pandemic resolved. I think things could get could get uh, fun out there and uh, maybe growth accelerating as well. Amen. Amen, indeed. Um, so I just want to thank you for taking the time to, to come on and, and talk about uh, this great company. I'm a happy shareholder. I'm going to be very happy, I think, in the long term. Can't wait to have my own lemonade insurance. Um, so again, thanks again for, for coming on. Thank you, Neil. Good talk um, to you. I had a blast having a conversation with Daniel. I hope you guys enjoyed it as well. If you have any questions, comments on what we talked about, don't hesitate to leave it down in the comments below. That will be for this video. If you liked it, consider leaving a thumbs up. If you haven't subscribed to this channel, hit that subscribe button. And as always, guys, take care, stay safe, and see you all in the next video. Bye-bye.